All right, y'all, Jose Nino here, back with another captivating installment of El Nino Speaks. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Ray McGovern. He is a former Army Infantry Intelligence Officer and CIA analyst who served during the administrations of John F. Kennedy all the way up to George H.W. Bush. You've been on quite a roundtable tour lately, Ray. Really, I really enjoyed your panel discussions on Gonzalo Lira's channel and even your previous discussions alongside um, international relations experts like John Mearsheimer. Anything new with you these days? I'm sorry? Oh, no, like, um, are you doing any new talks these days or... Uh, uh, yeah, like, I've got yeah. to... Yeah. I've got a few scheduled, but uh, looking forward to chatting with you for the present. Awesome. Well, tell my audience more about yourself before we start diving into some of the topics for tonight. Sure. That's a good idea. A lot of people uh, know that John Kennedy asked people to come down to Washington without asking what that country can do for them, but what they might be able to do for their country. Well, a lot of people these days don't realize that that didn't sound fake at the time. <laughs> it sounded really real. We had a new young president in there who seemed to have his head screwed on right. He was saying the right things, and since I had just completed my degree in Russian and was headed toward a master's degree in Russian area studies, and since the Russians were causing all kinds of trouble, the Soviets in those days, of course, it seemed to be a natural for me to heed the call and so after I completed my master's degree, I did my two years in Army Infantry Intelligence, and then it was a natural for me to progress over to the, an the analysis directorate of the CIA, and I probably should say uh, for people today that there's real, there are really two CIAs. Um, there's the one that President Truman uh, tried to construct right after the war, as you can imagine, there were all kinds of intelligence agencies coming out of the war reporting to Truman, and he couldn't figure out how he could get the straight scoop, you know, a non-departmental look at things. Uh, he knew the State Department was defending its own policies. Uh, he, he knew that what the Pentagon was saying about the Soviets being 12 feet tall <laughs> could not quite conceivably be true. So he created this CIA, a central place where all the information come together in one place under his rule, okay? Not responsive or not under the sponsorship of the State Department or the Pentagon, uh, an, an outfit that reported directly to him. Uh, and our, our, our orders were to give him what he called untreated intelligence. Uh, the vernacular of that is to tell it like it is, let me know the best. And, by the way, you have career protection for doing that because you're working for me. And if you say something that doesn't square with what the state or the Defense Department says, that's okay. We want the real deal. Now, you can imagine how attractive that was for somebody trained in Russian, having taught the Russian language, and just, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready to go. And so I entered the analytic ranks of the CIA in 1963, April was the month, uh, so you know, several months before they killed John Kennedy. 
Uh, it was a very, very heady time. Kennedy spoke out and said, you know, look, we, we really can't, we can't risk getting into a nuclear war with, with Russia. Uh, we've got to work things out. And indeed, he was on the path to working things out when he was assassinated. Now, I said two agencies. Uh, there was another, <laughs> there is another CIA, and that was an accident of history. Let me explain. Uh, after the war, uh, there were very courageous, I mean, really, really daring people, uh, spies who, who jumped in behind enemy lines and overthrew governments and did this, that, and the other thing. They came back into town and there was great, you know, there's great applause and yay. And then they said, well, you know, <laughs> thanks very much for the applause, but uh, like, uh, should we, sh should we hang around here? You, you got work for us? <laughs> no. Of course, the Soviets were overrunning Eastern Europe. They were had a toehold in the Balkans. They were overthrowing governments. And so the powers that be, notably George Kennan himself said, no, no, don't go, don't go back to your universities or your, your corporations or your law firms. No, no, we need you here. And so the question became, we're talking 1946, 47, 48. The question became, hmm, where do we put these guys, these guys and women? There were women that just as courageous as the guys. So the default being, you know, a department for overthrowing governments just didn't sound quite right. So some bright soul got the idea, hey, we're creating this CIA analysis group and they're, they're going to have to deal with some spies. And so it will be secret and confidential information. Let's put the operatives, the people who overthrow governments, in together with the analysts, and it'll be just one big happy family. B.S. It could never be a happy family. It was a structural fault from the outset, and we've seen it play out in the decades since. So, suffice it to say that I had nothing to do with the operational part of the agency. I was cut off, hermetically sealed off from the operations people. Indeed, the new building that was created just before I arrived in 63 was divided in two by turnstiles on each floor <laughs> to prevent the analysts from going over to hear what the operations people were doing and vice versa. So what I know about overthrowing governments comes largely from the New York Times, Washington Post, and the people who write about such things. And we were, as I say, kept away from all that information. There, there are pluses and minuses to all that, uh, but we can discuss that if you like. So, long story short, I come on the scene. Uh, after training, it was, it was January 1964, when I was giving a, given a very active account. It was the account watching Russian or Soviet foreign policy toward China, the international communist movement at the time, Far East, in Vietnam. Wow. They had been a very experienced analyst who moved up the ladder just as I came in. So it was a heady responsibility, but it was really, really a terrific uh, initiation into the analytical process. That was 64. In 70, I became the branch chief for Soviet foreign policy. I later briefed presidents with the president's daily brief. That was the acme of my professional experience, which I treasure. Uh, and uh, and then when I retired, the Soviet Union had just fallen apart. <laughs> so I, you know, 
having done my piece, uh, my part to help that happen, I clap myself on the back and I say, well, way to go, Ray, you did it. Well, it was not just you, but <laughs> we all did it, right? And I never, never, ever expected that we'd be in the situation that we are now. I went to work in the inner city. I had been volunteering, helping uh, nonprofit people, helping the poorest of the poor in Washington. I loved that. And then all of a sudden, a decade later, I saw my former colleagues deliberately distorting, uh, deliberately manufacturing evidence, in quotes, to justify a war of aggression against Iraq. I, I couldn't believe it at first, but that's what happened. And I guess I figured that, you know, since uh, taxpayer money had trained me in the art of, of looking at what's going on and being able to analyze it, that I would, uh, I would pay back, so to speak, and call out the lies, even though some of them are my closest friends. And uh, there was a group that we gathered together called Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. We were only five at first. Now we're up around 50. Uh, we've been publishing memos to the president uh, in the same format we used to do when we are in active duty, so to speak, try to warn him about the dangers. Well, the last two were to Biden the dangers of Ukraine, the dangers of Pelosi Gate getting out of hand. These are real dangers, and uh, those are the ones perhaps we can focus on later on. Yes, actually, that's where we'll start with Russia. So we're nearly six months into the special military operation phase of the Russo-Ukrainian conflict. What do you make of the current situation in Ukraine thus far? Well, if you're asking about where things stand just now, uh, the Russians are winning hands down, even though the New York Times, the Washington Post are reluctant to admit that. But more basically, we really ought to figure out or explicate exactly how the thing evolved. Uh, maybe it's a good segue. I ended pretty much with the Soviet Union falling apart. That was 1990, 1991. I had just retired. Well, I know now what happened. There was a promise made by the Secretary of State James Baker, who worked for George H.W. Bush, the first Bush president, whom I knew quite well, who I worked for in 75 and who I briefed every other morning when he was vice president. So what did George H.W. Bush do when the Berlin Wall fell in November of 1989? He called up, he called up Mikhail Gorbachev and he said, Mikhail, I'm sorry for your problems. Really sorry. I understand them. And I just want to reassure you that I'm not going to dance on what's left of the Berlin Wall. Whoa. In other words, I'm not going to take advantage of it, but we need to get together. I mean, Central Europe is falling apart. We need to we need to get together what to do about it. Can you meet me real soon? <laughs> and Gorbachev says, well, how soon? And Bush says, how about three weeks from now in Malta? We'll meet in the Isle of Malta in the middle of the Mediterranean. We'll talk this thing through. And they did that first week of December. And then Bush said, he reiterated his intention not to take advantage of, of Moscow's difficulties. Then he said, how soon can you see my Secretary of State, James Baker? Uh, <laughs> well, they arranged first week of February, so pretty much just, uh, well, yeah, 
two months later, uh, here Baker comes into, into Moscow, and he says, look, this is what we're going to do. Uh, this is our proposal. Uh, we'd like to have um, Germany reunited. Now, Jose, you, you're probably not as old as I am, and so you probably didn't shudder the same way I did when I heard about a reunited Germany. <laughs> yeah. And I come from a, a country that was not attacked during World War II, which I was alive for. I don't come from a country that lost 26 million plus from the Nazi invasion, World War II. So you can imagine if I was shuddering at the prospect of a reunited Germany, <laughs> you can imagine how Gorbachev and Shevardnadze, his uh, his secretary, uh, his foreign sec foreign minister, felt, and they said, "Look, that's a bitter pill. That's a pretty big quid. What do you? What's the quo? What are you going to give us?" And Baker said, "How about this? How about if if we promise never to move NATO, any NATO country, one inch east of East Germany, where it is now?" Well, long story short. Karabachov and Shevardnadze bought it. Yeah, imagine the next day they came back. They did sleep on it. Came back and said, "Now, you, you, this is a promise, right?" Uh, <laughs> I could see Baker say, "Cross my heart and hope to die." He was from Texas. He was a clever Texas lawyer. Now it wasn't written down, and that's the big uh -oh. deal. Oh, <laughs> that wasn't written down. Okay, so I asked uh, a fellow named Kuvaldin, who was with Gorbachev at the time, one of his closest advisors. Saw him in Moscow about seven years, and I, I said, uh, "Why, why, why didn't you get that written down?" And he looked at me, and he said, "Well, the, the stock answers are: number one, we didn't have German buy-in yet, and number two, the Warsaw Pact, of which East Germany was a part, was still operating; it hadn't been dissolved yet." And he looked me in the eye, and he said, "But, Mr. McGovern, the real reason is we trusted you." Okay, that was February seventh. 1990, okay, there were 16 NATO countries in existence then. Now there are 30, count them, three zero. That's almost doubling the number of uh, NATO countries. And guess how many of them are east of East Germany? All of them. <laughs> you know, all of them, like all the ones that were beyond 16. I can't do arithmetic, but you, you do it, okay? Yeah. <laughs> now, does that, violate, does that violate a promise? Of course it does. Are promises important? Of course they are. So that's where it started. Now, Gorbachev also expected to get some real economic help uh, to, to put Russia back in good shape after, after the Soviet Union fell apart. What he got instead from Bill Clinton primarily were these uh, oligarchs and smart people, we call them the Harvard boys, and the people from Treasury who went in there and, let's face it, they plundered the Russian economy. There were oligarchs in Russia, of course, in Ukraine, and there are lots of oligarchs in Wall Street, and the Harvard boys, and they got this fellow Yeltsin to let them do whatever they wanted in, in Russia. Americans don't know that. So starting in 1991, you had Russia falling apart economically, unable to feed its people. As a matter of fact, a statistic that I ran across, it comes from the World Bank. It has to do with mortality rate. It has to do with when Russians die and between, now get this, <laughs> take a note if you will, 1991 
1995, the average age for a Russian male to die went from 63 to 57. Do the math. What's that? Six years? Six, six years of less age in four or five years of chrono time. Uh, that speaks volumes to me. And again, I would, I would uh, emphasize that comes from the World Bank. So the place was falling apart. When Yeltsin was up for re-election, there was no way he was going to win. And guess what? The Harvard boys and the other people that Clinton sent in uh, poured money. The IMF gave a big loan and he won again. <laughs> Did he win on his own? Of course not. Look at Time Magazine when he won. It, it, it shows uh, in bas-relief how, uh, how the U.S. helped Yeltsin get four more years, so to speak. So that's the background here. And who's watching all this? Putin, Vladimir Putin. He's in Petersburg and he's, uh, he's at a pretty high level. And all of a sudden, Yeltsin, maybe as penance or expiation for his sins, uh, what he did to the Russian economy, he said, well, maybe Putin will, maybe he'll do a better job. I want to go off and drink myself to death. And so he appoints Putin on New Year's Eve, what's that, 20, uh, 2000, to be the new president. So that's the, the short, the thumbnail sketch of how Putin came in. He tried to join NATO, for God's sake. He tried to create a, a more decent relationship with the West. He was rebuffed at every turn. And then he watched 2002, Bush, Junior Bush, all of a sudden he leaves the bedrock, the linchpin for strategic st stability, namely the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which most of your audience will remember, limited the number of anti-ballistic missile sites to one, okay? Why? Also that neither side could think that they could make a first strike and escape immediately a retaliation that would obliterate them, okay? So, you know, it was, it was sort of mad, uh, mutual assured destruction, but it was, <laughs> but it worked for 30 years, 1972, and I was in Moscow for the signing of that since my branch worked on that since 2002, 30 years. So that's the first thing that uh, Putin observes. And then he sees these little ABM sites going into Romania, and Poland, and he's wondering, oh, ABMs, well, they're not going to be able to shoot down any Russian ICBMs. Well, what did the, oh, then he's told, oh, they're against Iran. And then, <laughs> yeah, I remember said, well, that actually. <laughs> <laughs> he said, but Iran doesn't have any. Well, that's okay. They could have them. And then, of course, you have the, the, the Iran deal where Iran is forbidden to have any such missiles or warheads for, for 10 years. And so Putin comes back and says, well, wait a second, what about now? You're still building those bases in Poland and Romania. And they say, oh, well, you know, he might, he might get them, or maybe North Korea. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was a travesty. And as Putin pointed out, at the time, we're talking about five, six, seven years ago, look, we know that those ABM sites, what you call ABM sites, already in Romania and almost complete in Poland, uh, those, those diameters are exactly the same that could accommodate cruise missiles, um, hypersonic missiles, when America gets hypersonic missiles. And that gives me, Putin, five to seven minutes 
warning time as to whether I should blow up the rest of the world. <laughs> Hello? I don't want that, okay? And so he, he spoke out very vociferously about that. Let me finish up here on a more current note. Uh, there were all kinds of talks of negotiations back at the end of last year, and uh, negotiations were to start in, uh, in Geneva on the 9th and 10th of January of this year. But all of a sudden, Putin calls the White House, or his people do, and they say, look, uh, Mr. Putin wants to talk to Mr. Biden right away. I said, wait a second. Uh, <laughs> negotiators are going to meet in just 10 days here in, in Geneva. What's the big? He wants to talk to him right away. Whoa, what was the big deal? Well, we know what the big deal was, because the Russian readout of that conversation on the 30th of December was, and I quote, Mr. Biden said the U.S. has no intention of putting offensive strike missiles in Ukraine. The Russians were delighted. They clapped their hands. They saw this as a really good start for the negotiations that were to take place. Indeed, the draft treaty that the Russians had tabled uh, that would uh, assuage their fears and, and create some sort of balance in this part of Europe, five of the seven provisions of that treaty had to do with precisely this kind of thing, these intermediate-range ballistic missiles. So what happened? Well, that was the 30th of December. The negotiators get, get together. There's no mention of this promise by Biden. Finally, on the 12th of February, they have another conversation, Biden and Putin. And Putin complains after the conversation, Mr. Biden didn't say anything about his earlier promise that there would be no offensive strike missiles in Ukraine, like there are or there can be in Romania and Poland. Now, that was key. Nobody really has pointed that out, but that was the 12th of February. In my view, Putin said, you know, these guys are not serious. Uh, not only are they reneging on yet another promise, remember the promise about not moving NATO one inch eastward, but they're putting in these missile sites that will give me almost negligible uh, time uh, to decide whether I want to retaliate and destroy the rest of the world. Uh, we got to do something about this. We ought to clean out Ukraine, make sure that our people in the eastern sectors of Ukraine are no longer fired upon by the Ukrainian army, having lost 12 to 14,000 Russian-speaking citizens already, clean out the place, and uh, the only thing left to do was to make sure, and this is important, to make sure that he had backing for this. Now, what kind of backing do you need to invade another country? You need somebody like China. So Putin went up to China to, op open, uh, to help Xi open up the Beijing Olympics, and he says to, um, now, now that, that was the 4th of February, okay? Now, I don't know exactly what Putin said to Xi, but this is the dialogue that I think can be uh, reasoned to coming out of what happened next. Okay, here's Putin. <clears throat> A comrade Xi, I know you consider yourself my best friend. You, you've said so. And so I'm going to confide in you that the West is not being serious. It looks like the Ukrainian army is about to invade Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, these intermediate-range ballistic missiles, they're being described as 
anti-ballistic missiles. We know we know what they are. The Nazis are pretty much in control. The pro-Nazi units of the Ukrainian forces in the east of Ukraine. I'm going to have to invade. I'm going to have to invade Ukraine. G again. My imagination of what she responded. Mr. Putin, you mean after the Olympics are over, right? Oh, yeah, sure, right now. Okay, the Olympics get over, and we're back to the factual now. The next day, Donetsk and Lugansk finally have their eight-year-old requests to be recognized as independent countries, fulfilled and endorsed by Russia. And two days later, Putin invades Ukraine. Would he have done that without Chinese backing? I don't think so. A lot of people disagree with me, but I still see Putin as a real calculating, uh, cautious person who would not do something so egregious, uh, so he considered necessary to defend his country without the kind of backing that China has given him. The last, last thing here on that is that he has in return given China the same backing on what I call Pelosi Gate, the visit by Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan just yesterday or the day before, I lose track of time, where the Russians said, <laughs> the Chinese are absolutely right, this is a provocation, it should not be tolerated. So, long story short, we have Russia and China together in a way that they have never been together, never ever, like in centuries of, of their, their existence, never before. And I can speak from experience because I was in charge of, of uh, analyzing Russian policy toward China in the early 60s down to 1970 when my responsibilities expanded to take over the whole branch of Soviet foreign policy. So I kept looking at this and they weren't loggerheads. They hated each other. They, we thought they would hate each other forever. Wrong. Things change. And now they're in a, not a squeeze, as Biden called it, the squeeze that China is putting on Russia. No, it's a commonly embrace, and it changes the whole correlation of forces in favor of these two and against the West and the rest of the U.S.'s lily-white allies. Now, one point that you mentioned that caught my attention was the rumor of a kind of like Ukrainian version of Operation Storm taking place in the Donbass region. So would you say that was like the straw that broke the camel's back when it came to Russia's ultimate decision to launch its like military incursion into Ukraine, like to preempt a potential attack on the breakaway republics? That's a good question, Jose. And I can't tell you a definitive answer these things have multiple factors uh, weighing on them. Uh, I can't single out this charge that Putin and Russian leaders have all made that Ukraine was about to pounce on Donetsk and Lugansk, the Donbas. The reports are in late, uh, late January. They were kind of poised to do that uh, early February. But you know, Aside from some reports from the OECD, he was at the Office for Security and Cooperation in Europe, they were monitoring uh, the exchange to the degree it was an exchange. It was mostly artillery coming in from the Ukrainian side. Uh, they saw an uptick in that activity. 
but I've never seen conclusive evidence that that was uh, that Putin is right in claiming that they were about to attack. Surely, uh, most of the Ukrainian forces that were worth worth their name uh, were assembled in that area, but that had been the case for for uh, many many years. Uh, what I what I think uh, were also powerful factors were what I just mentioned the emplacement of intermediate-range uh, nuclear weapons in, in uh, Ukraine eventually, uh, already in, in Romania and possibly in Poland, at least the sites are, are in there. And then the, the Nazis, you know? I mean, <laughs> I talked about 26 million Russians being killed in World War II. Well, who did it? It was the Nazis. And who cooperated with the Nazis? Well, there were Ukrainians, Stepan Bandera, was part of the SS, for God's sake. He killed tens of thousands of Jews, the Poles, of Russians. And he is worshipped by the Azov Battalion and many other pro-Nazi groups, polite people call them hard-right groups, uh, who were poised and who were shelling, shelling the Russian speakers in Donetsk and Lugansk since 2014, when we, the West, overthrew a relatively friendly government in Kiev, friendly toward Russia, and replaced it with a very unfriendly government, which all of a sudden said, guess what? Hey, we ought to join NATO. That was a last straw back in 2014. You know that Crimea was annexed. And then this, these last straws <laughs> down in at the turn of the year, well, there were a bunch of them, the ones that I just mentioned. There may be others that don't come to mind right now. I see. Now, yeah, as you mentioned before, it's becoming clear that Russia has, like, the upper hand in this conflict. Nevertheless, there are still folks in D.C. who don't want to see Russia win in Ukraine. Do you see the the interventionist Uni Party trying to escalate matters and get the U.S. more directly involved in Ukraine? Yes, and that's the scary thing. The people running our policy are naive. I've called them infantile. That, that's a re- kind of an insult to some of the infants I know. Yeah, they're, that's pretty charitable. That's kind of sophomoric or adolescent, really. And they think uh, that once they get highly educated, they know something about the world. Well, they don't. And, you know, Putin called us on this a long time ago. Actually, it's worth repeating that after there was a high moment in relations between the U.S. and Russia, and not many people remember this, but back in 2013, there was a false flag chemical attack blamed on the Syrian government outside Damascus. And all the neocon people here in Washington, all, yeah, Obama has said, all of his advisors said, this is it, this is our red line, we got to attack them with our armed forces. In other words, an open war on Syria, shock and awe, just like on Iraq, right? Well, to his credit, Obama said, you know, this might not be a good idea. And wonder of wonders, he said, you know, I think I think maybe I'll ask Congress for uh, what they <laughs> what they think about this. Most most of your listeners here will will know that Congress really has the at least the ostensible right to declare or 
declare war. So that was a, a blow to the neocons, but John Kerry and other neocon-type people still were pressing for war, open war against Syria. Now, why? Well, if you know something about Israel's influence on U.S. policy, you'll know why. We won't go into that right now. In any case, Obama goes up to Petersburg for a summit, and he has a session with, with Putin alone. John Kerry somewhere else, okay? So he says, you know, we have this, we have this situation in Syria where uh, the Syrian government attacked with gas, and Putin says, well, that's not our information. Uh, we think it was a false flag attack. Of course, Putin was right in that. He said, but never mind that. We can get you out of this without making a war. And Obama said, oh, yeah. What? He says, yeah. Remember when we met in Loch Erne in Northern Ireland uh, back in June? And we set up that little study group to figure out how we could get rid of Syrian chemical weapons, such as they are after a long, long period. Oh, yeah, says Obama. Well, Putin says, and Mr. Obama, happy to tell you that we've reached an agreement with the Syrian government. You can listen to the Syrian foreign minister announce it tomorrow, but they have agreed to give up all their chemical weapons for destruction on a U.S ship, if you will allow it, uh, outfitted for destruction of chemical weapons under UN supervision. How does that sound to you? Oh, that sounds pretty. You, I can hear Obama's thinking, you know, I don't have to have a war. Oh, man, it sounds good. Well, anyhow, they agreed on that, okay? War was averted. And what's the point of all this? On the 13th, no, not the 13th, it was the 12th of September, 2013, Putin wrote an op-ed for the New York Times. I was reliably told at the time that he penned the last paragraph himself. And this is what it said, quote, I really appreciate the growth in trust between our two countries and between the President of the United States and me personally. What I don't agree with is the notion that any country is exceptional, as the President of the United States declared in his major speech just last week. I, Putin, think that all, all countries are, are about equal. Now, they're not equal in terms of uh, progress toward democracy or economically equal. There are big countries and small countries. But when God looks down at the countries of the world, I think he sees them as all equal, period, end quote. <laughs> now, I told you, I was told at the time he, he did that himself. A confirmation of a kind came two years later when he's in an interview. Someone asked him a simple question, and he repeated that almost verbatim, exactly what I what I said. Okay, so what's he saying? He's saying, you know, you ought to really just give it this notion that you guys have more rights than anybody else, that you guys can can have a uh, a new world order, or that you can have a rule-based regime. Now, what We have these laws, we have the UN, and, you know, even God sees us all as equal, you know? Now, that was exceptionalism, and that's Obama accusing, uh, being accused, or, yeah, being accused, because he said it in a speech, of exceptionalism way back on the 12th of September, 2013. Well, you know, that's almost, what, nine years ago? And the U.S. has been acting as, as it, if it thinks it's exceptional ever since, most recently out in Taiwan. So my point simply is that uh, the, 
the Russians are fed up with our thinking that we have certain privileges, uh, that we can discard the interests of other countries, specifically with respect to mutual security in Central Europe or in the Far East, and that there's a new correlation of forces. Now, that's a, that's a phrase the uh, Russian communists used to always use, but it makes sense. I mean, it's a pretty simple concept, right? Correlation of forces? Yes. And, and right now, whereas we used to have like bipolar correlation of forces during the Cold War, then it got a little messy. Now it's bipolar again. Now, I don't say multipolar because basically, listen to this now, in my view, it's the lily white West against people of color. NATO against China, India, South Africa, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Russia, predominantly people of color. That's a noxious mix. That's, that's not going to do anybody any. That's racist. And that's what's, that's what's unfolding now. And Russia, after three centuries, Peter the Great, 1700, was going to try to knock a window into Europe. You want to be part of Europe. The Russians want to be part of Europe. And of course they are. Well, no more. They're turning east. And this is a great, uh, this is a great loss to Europe. Uh, when you think of what the Russians have contributed in the arts and sciences and everything else. And, you know, the, the sad thing, there's no real reason for it, except for this notion that we are exceptional and entitled just because we went to Ivy League colleges. Yeah, there's definitely a completely different uh, geopolitical environment um, unfolding before our very eyes because for a lot of people in D.C., they want to extend the Monroe Doctrine to like the whole planet, and that's just not realistic. There's going to be uh, emerging great power rivals that want to exert their own interests and don't want to become like just like lifeless cogs in this universalist foreign policy machine. Yeah, you know, the, the spheres of influence, uh, that, that's really a, a key notion here. I was amused to be, it was two, two days ago, I guess, interviewed by Sky News of Australia, mm -hmm. a really hard right station. I don't know who recommended me, but <laughs> I had my chance for, for eight minutes. And one of the questions I was asked is, oh, what about these, uh, the Chinese uh, militarizing these islands offshore here and putting bases, bases there uh, around, the, around this periphery there? And <laughs> I said, well, how many, how many foreign bases does, does the U.S. have? You would count them in, <laughs> in the hundreds. Yeah. Right? And, and you know, it's sort of like spheres of influence, you know. We have the Caribbean and used to have Latin America surrounded by, <laughs> by bases. And when Khrushchev in 1962 decided that he would introduce uh, nuclear missiles into the mix, we threatened nuclear war. Now, luckily, there were some sane people around there. They worked it out. But it's the same. It's the same with Russia and Ukraine. Spheres of, spheres of influence are a, a fact of life in international relations. Big countries don't like to be threatened by people right hard on their borders. And the same with the Chinese. I mean, with the Seventh Fleet steaming up and down there and running exercises of this or that kind, if I were, and I said this to the Australian guys, if I were Chinese, I would really want to have those those islands um, put a couple of uh, missiles on there so that the Seventh Fleet wouldn't uh, take liberties with, with my home or my city. 
So it's all a matter of perspective. And uh, these guys, these clowns that we're running our foreign policy, you know, uh, what's his name? Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken. Oh, total lightweights. Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, you know, I, I think they really believe that they're in charge of the world, uh, but nobody put them in charge of the world. And the Russians and the Chinese together, not to mention the Indians and the Pakistanis and everybody else, they're going to put them in their place, and it's not going to be in charge of the world. Yep. Now, Russia is gradually gobbling up some territories in Ukraine, and it's becoming abundantly clear that these borders will be changing once the dust settles from this conflict. In your estimation, what does the future of Ukraine look like? Will it be a rump state, or will Russia try to capture all of it? Well, the important thing to mention now is that Russia has broadened its horizon, and no less than Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov announced that. It's about a week ago, 10 days maybe. He said, look, remember what we said about limiting our aims to the Donbass, to those Russian-speaking areas there in Donetsk and Lugansk? Well, forget about it. Uh, We have broader aims now. We have Zaporozhye. We have uh, Kherson. We have areas farther to the west. And uh, we... We are sensitive to a hard fact of life. It's called geography. Okay? You got that? Yeah. Geography. He says that. And, Advanced and, concept and say, there. Well, what do you mean? And they say, well, you know, with the U.S. putting in these, uh, giving the Ukrainians uh, missiles like these HIMARS, they have a range of 50 miles. So we're going to go forward. Our, our forward line will go 50 miles farther. And if there are other... other Weaponry that comes in, well, you know what to expect. So, the war has widened. Uh, Has the U.S. public been informed about that? No. Did the New York Times or Washington Post even take much note of what Lavrov said? A wider war. (laughs) No. What gives here? I just don't, well, I guess I do understand. A wider war is uh, more money for the arms makers and the arms traders. It's more money for, for the military and, and, and the, the people who think that we are exceptional and that it will work. It's not going to work. You're not going to be able to do this in Russia's backyard. Now, I don't know how it will work out, but before I was uh, wondering whether Russian forces would go and take Odessa. I think they will now. Will they go as far as uh, Moldova? I think they will now. And the real question is, how will the U.S. react to this? How would these uh, uh, wet-behind-the-ears sophomores think, what, what's the next step on the U.S. or NATO side? Well, the only favorable factor here is the onset of winter. And in just a couple of words, Western Europe and parts of Eastern Europe are going to be freezing to death unless they make a deal with the Russians for the gas and the oil that they need. I mean, it's really, really simple. simple. And all I can say is that the economic geniuses that are advising Biden and, and put in these sanctions and all that other stuff, you know, they're no brighter than the, uh, than the political or foreign policy advisors, and that's certainly not a compliment. So what's going to happen? I don't know. The bottom line here is that this is an existential threat as seen by Russia. Is it an existential threat to the United States? Well, not militarily, for God's sake. 
politically, you could argue that here's Biden, here are the Democrats coming up on the midterms. You could look at that as an existential threat to the, to the Democratic Party. But that's not what an intelligence analyst wars about, okay? <laughs> intelligence analyst says, look, there are existential threats to Russia and to China and Taiwan. There's no existential threat to the U.S. from either of these two countries, except in a political sense. And if Democrats are so, I won't use adjectives here, but if they put the priority on the midterms and try to appear tough, well, look what happened just now in Taiwan. Uh, it's not going to work, number one. And number two, it's going to raise raise the danger of something really untoward happening. And I hate to mention it, but that could include nuclear weapons. Yeah, I think this is appropriate now because let's shift our gaze over to China. Because while the U.S. is drop, still dropping copious amounts of military material and economic aid into Ukraine, the inevitable pivot to Asia is taking place, but in a very, very reckless manner. And as you mentioned before, this is particularly relevant and timely with regards to Speaker Pelosi's recent visit to Taiwan. So once the Russo-Ukrainian conflict ends, do you believe that China will be the next country in the U.S. deep state's crosshair? Well, it's already, you know, uh, in our official documents that China is a, what they call it, systemic challenge, okay? Uh, Russia, immediate direct threat. China, systemic challenge. Now, to the most recent NATO summit were invited representatives of Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, and Japan. Huh. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Well, now I guess maybe they're going to try to make it the North Atlantic slash Pacific Treaty Organization. What the heck is going on here? Well, there are people, high officials in those four countries uh, who don't know what to do. They're tossed between, a betwixt and between, and a really good example is today. Nancy Pelosi arrives in South Korea, and the president of South Korea uh, had had a previous engagement. He went to see a play, and then he had dinner with uh, some of the actors, and then he went home because he's on vacation. Oh, wow. A deliberate snub. Why would he do that? Why would he not meet Nancy like all those Taiwanese did and some of the others? Well, I don't know. I think probably he's very sensitive to the leverage that China has on South Korea and the need for South Korea to have a decent relationship with Beijing. Now, that's going to happen more and more. Uh, the head of South Korea may show up to some more NATO meetings, but it's not going to it's not going to mean anything. In other words, uh, NATO has this uh, broad vision of being, you know, not only Atlantic, but a Pacific power, but it ain't going to work because just as Russia has preponderant strength next to its border, so does China, of course. And the only people that would expect to profit, or I should say profiteer, from challenges against China are the people who make the, the ships. I mean, there's talk of doubling the size of the Seventh Fleet. Oh, lots of money there for the arms traders, right? And in the final analysis, is China a threat to us? The answer that I come up with is no. I talk to lots of Chinese specialists. They remind me, 
for millennia of civilization, lots of recent decades. Has China attacked its neighbors? No, not as a rule. Exception, little exception on Cambodia, maybe. But no, they haven't. Why haven't they? Well, the simple answer is there's 1.4 billion of them, and they got a lot of lot on their plate just bringing these people up out of utter poverty, which they have successfully done for the most part over the last two decades. That's an accomplishment, but that's inward looking. So again, why does this Australian commentator ask me, Mr. McGovern? Why would the Chinese be building little bases on islands, some of which they construct there in the South China Sea? Well, I would say, well, you know, I think maybe it's a defensive sort of thing against the Seventh Fleet. It's all the way you look at it, and uh, I don't know. I don't know as much. I don't pretend to know as much about China as I think I know about Russia. Uh, but uh, knowing what I do know about China and what the experts tell me is. Look, leave them alone for God's sake. They talk—that is, the Chinese talk—about a win-win attitude toward foreign relations. Why can't there be a a win-win? Well, I'm at a loss to explain why Western statements, especially statesmen, especially the U.S., can't settle for a win-win. Why can't we be friends? I don't buy the notion that either Russia is trying to take over the world. Well, China is trying to take over even the rest of Asia, and once you don't agree with those kinds of things, there's ample opportunity for a win-win. But the people who suffer, of course, are the ones that build the arms, sell the arms, put part of the profits in the pockets of politicians. The politicians appropriate more money to build the arms, sell the arms, get them, blah blah blah. It's a great cycle, isn't it? You know, I'll just close on this note and say,、uh, Pope. What's his name? Pope Francis. I don't <laughs> normally agree with what popes say, but when he came and and talked to Congress, what was it? Two thousand two thousand fifteen, and he's got a joint session of Congress there, you know. And he looks out at him, and he speaks a little truth, and he says, and I quote, "You know, the main problem is the blood-soaked arms traders." And the congressmen, senators, get up. And then they look in their vest pockets to see if the last envelope from Raytheon is in there, and the one from Boeing. <laughs> There's the one from Raytheon who was giving hypocrisy a bad name, for God's sake. That's how it works. And until we can get that kind of money out of politics, you know, we really have an upward,、uh, an uphill struggle.、Uh, I fully agree, and I think this is a great place to wrap this up. Now, Ray, I had a great time chatting with you tonight. Where can my listeners stay up to date with your latest works and media appearances? Well, thanks for for asking because、uh, I have a, a, a webmaster, a, a webmaster. He's my son, my youngest son, and he gives me hell if I appear on a program like this and neglect to mention the website that he that he slaves over. Okay, that he really works hard on. Uh, get a pencil. It's raymcgovern dot com. It's not hard to remember. Once again, raymcgovern dot com. Now, my son always says, "Now, Dad, after you say that, you should say, 'If you don't get it, you don't get it.'" But I'm too <laughs> modest to say something like that. <laughs> All right, and to my audience, thank you so much for your generous attention. And with that, El Nino has spoken.